This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. Today, we're on New Books in History and New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies with our guest, Stephen Rieck, who is an assistant professor at Texas A&M College Station. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. So a little bit about Stephen's book. Um, he has just published Russia's Entangled Embrace, The Tsarist Empire and the Armenians, 1801-1914. This book is published by Cornell University Press, 2020. And congratulations, first of all, on the book today. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited to finally see it in print. So for our listeners, a little bit about Professor Rieg. Um, Stephen Badalian Rieg received his PhD in modern Russian history in 2016 from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His dissertation, Claiming the Caucasus, Imperial Russia's Encounter with Armenians, 1801 to 1894, now turned into the book today, was based on extensive fieldwork in federal and city archives in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and to a lesser extent, Yerevan. After receiving his assistant professorship at Texas A&M University, Professor Rieg went back to the archives to expand and revise this into the monograph. His other publications appear in the journals The Russian Review, Nationalities Papers, and Ab Imperio. In 2019, he embarked on his next project by conducting archival research in St. Petersburg and Tbilisi. And his new project is tentatively titled Westerners in the Tsar's East, European Lives in Imperial Russia's Caucasus. He's also an Arts and Humanities Fellow at Texas A&M in, uh, for 2020 and 2023. And he's eager to continue his new research while, of course, as we all are, confronting the equally daunting hurdles of a global pandemic and online teaching. Uh, so, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Are you ready to go today? Absolutely. I'm very ready, very excited to be here. Awesome. So, um, for our listeners, let's start with the, the biggest um, points about this book. Um, can you tell us in your journey from, um, because I love reading acknowledgement sections, so from your journey um, from Kansas to Texas A&M, how, how you came to be interested in this topic? What motivated you to write it? 
Sure, sure. Well, actually, the journey began pretty far away from Kansas, pretty far away from Texas, uh, very far away from North Carolina. It began in Yerevan, Armenia, in the late Soviet era, which is where I was born. I was born in Yerevan in the mid-80s. And growing up as a kid, I noticed but did not yet understand a pretty um, conspicuous and really almost omnipresent tension between... uh, Russophobia and Russophilia and everything in between among Armenians around me of various socioeconomic, even uh, cultural educational backgrounds. I noticed it, but I did not really understand the basis or really the implications of those tensions between uh, very divergent attitudes among Armenians towards Russians, uh, both before and after 1991. Uh, After I immigrated to the United States uh, at age 13, I started reading more and more, and I started to uh, become very interested in questions of uh, Russian policies toward Armenians, just as much as I was interested from childhood in Armenian attitudes towards Russians. So as an undergraduate student at the University of Kansas, I had the privilege of being mentored by Eve Levin and Gerald Michelson, who really uh, um, kind of uh, set me on the path toward a more professionalized rather than amateurish, casual um, study of uh, Russian imperial history. And I started to read more and more and more about uh, Russian methods of imperialism and Russian... uh, encounters with the Caucasus as both a region and a uh, multi-ethnic, poly-religious social fabric. And that is really how I uh, started on uh, building my interest in this topic. And after the University of Kansas, I went to the University of North Carolina, where this developed into a dissertation. So I want to begin um, in discussing your book with previous research with which you're very, very familiar. Um, Some of our listeners will think of the work of Ronald Suni and his work on on the Caucasus and Armenia. So in in introducing your research, what is it in particular that your work does to expand upon the Russo-Armenian experience? Uh, really good question. Uh, as you point out, uh, you know, I think it's really safe to say it's not an exaggeration to for us to presume that the first name that uh, most uh, readers or listeners will be familiar with uh, that has anything to do with uh, this topic is uh, Ronald Grigor Suni from the University of Michigan. And in particular, most people are probably familiar with his 1994 Looking Toward Ararat, Armenian Modern History. And that is, of course, the monograph that uh, I was probably most familiar with when I was still a teenager in high school. It was probably the first time I read it. And I was absolutely, absolutely fascinated. I loved his emphasis on the responses of various Armenian social classes to imperial and then Soviet Russia's 
strategies of incorporation, uh, absorption, uh, engagement with our, the Armenian diaspora, the internal and external Armenian diaspora. And that's really probably the main English language monograph that started me on this path. But uh, later on, I started to engage much more deeply and thoroughly with uh, the work of George Bournoutian, Richard Kobanesian, scholars of Russian imperialism uh, in particular, Paul Wirth, uh, Valerie Kilvelson, uh, Nancy Shields Coleman, and uh, the much more recent works, uh, Kelly O'Neill, uh, Charles Steinle, though, um, a few other people as well. When do you think? Um, Russo-Armenian relations developed? You mentioned that they developed in the early modern period or maybe pre-early modern period around two axes. For the history of Russo-Armenian relations, when, when would you say for your book this starts? What's the beginning? Well, those are two different questions. Uh, we can first trace the first contacts to the late Kievan era when uh, Armenian merchants uh, ventured from the coasts of the Byzantine Empire to the southern shores of Kievan Rus to conduct trade. Uh, but uh, the contacts, the engagements between the two, I guess I should say, sides did not become much more thorough, much more conspicuous, much more uh, tangible until the early modern era. But for the purposes of my book, there is no really uh, serious political consistent engagement between the Tsarist state and the Armenian diaspora until Russia began the absorption, the conquest, the annexation, whatever you want to call it, of the South Caucasus in 1801 with the annexation or the incorporation of the Georgian kingdom of Gothic Arhesia. Now, let me acknowledge that uh, Peter the Great and several of his successors in the 18th century had ventured down into the Caucasus on temporary excursions, but it's not until 1801, started by Paul right before his death and then by Alexander I, his son, that Russia begins to actually incorporate territory in the South Caucasus. And of course, that is the process during which Armenians become key um, key actors in Russian imperialism in the Caucasus. And what are your sources? So you mentioned um, early on, or, or we mentioned in, um, in introducing you, uh, that you had done a lot of archival research, and that includes city archives. I, I find that really fascinating. Um, would you say that that you had to balance out your sources between the two capitals? I mean, or three capitals? How did you go about doing that in in um, preparing your dissertation and and then um, the book? Well, um... I was, uh, let me, you know, start out answering this question by making it very clear for everyone that first and foremost, this is a history of Tsarist methods of rule. This is a history of Russian imperialism. And it's not, uh, there's no pretension here of this being a comprehensive study of Russo-Armenian ties. 
And it's certainly not a study of Armenian responses to Russian imperialism, which in my opinion is such an important topic that it truly deserves a research monograph of its own. What I did was focus on the evolution of Russian imperial policies, primarily political policies, toward the the Armenian diaspora, both within the shifting, growing, expanding borders of the Tsarist state and also beyond Russia. To do that, I went uh, to um, the federal archives of uh, the Russian Federation, to Garf in Moscow, to Ergovia, the Russian State Historical Archive, to Russian State Military History Archive. I spent more than a year in the Russia State Historical Archive in St. Petersburg. I also, in Moscow, worked in the city archive to collect material on arguably the most prominent Russified Armenian family, the Lazarevs of the 19th century, who established a very... Um, respected, very prestigious uh, dynasty that engaged in commerce, in education, in politics, in diplomacy. Some of their members were actually uh, fairly high-ranking military officers. And to get at their story, I had to work in the Russian, in the Moscow city archive, uh, which was uh, a lot of fun, very interesting. And in chapter two of the book, I have a section on the Lazarev dynasty that primarily focuses on the uh, somewhat well-known Lazarev Institute of Oriental Languages in central Moscow. Yeah, I should mention quickly, I'm sorry, uh, to a lesser degree, I did uh, spend uh, some time down in Yerevan. And uh, my work in the Armenian National Archives focused primarily on collecting Russian uh, regional orders or orders from the center from Petersburg to the regional authorities, source authorities in Yerevaska uh, Gubernia, uh, Armenska Oblast, to the locally based source officials. Yeah, I wonder if you could um, talk about the Lazarev um, genealogy. I and mean, this is such a fascinating family going all the way back, I think, to the mid. Um, to the mid 18th century of philanthropists yeah. and educators right. and everything. And um, so uh, they might be known to our, our listeners, but why, why do you put them at the center of your narrative? I think you have a, a really um, interesting take on them in the second chapter of your book. These people were absolutely fascinating from various angles, but there's also no, which might be more of a subjective uh, uh, argument or uh, statement, but uh, more objectively, they were absolutely pivotal, and that's hardly an exaggeration, to the practical functionality of Tsarist imperialism, both on the periphery, in the South Caucasus, and also in very much the metropole and even uh, Russian diplomacy vis-a-vis Persia, the Ottoman Empire, and, for example, Austria. The Lazarev genealogy began with very humble origins in the mid-18th century. Uh, the original patriarch of the family moved from Persia 
to Moscow. Later, his descendants established factories, mills, various businesses in both Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg. But what they did very consciously and actively and almost strategically was to expand their engagement with Russia, with Russian society, with the Russian elites beyond the sphere of commerce and business by giving their, mainly their sons, advanced educations and having them move up through the ranks of uh, the bureaucratic, the civil, and the military services. And that is really what secured, in addition to their undeniable wealth and commercial success, secured their prominence in the Russian political establishment. And you mentioned your work uh, in the Russian state military archive. I also worked there um, in doing my work on cartography. And, and I will admit it wasn't the easiest place to do research at Argivia. Um, so in doing your research, where, where are the points, let's say, where the civic and the military intersect? I think this is a really um, interesting question for uh, those of us who are practitioners in the new imperial history. Um, do you see that with the Lazarev family or with other examples? Absolutely. You know, um, I was really honing in on that particular intersection, uh, the civic and military engagement of uh, ethnic Armenians in the Tsarist service. And this is such an important and I think representative subtopic of this entire study is how ethnic Armenians who were perhaps born and raised and certainly received their education and uh, career success in Russia, self-identified as these intermediaries, as members of two distinct uh, cultures, spheres, and uh, perhaps even uh, worlds at the same time. And the Lazadevs are an absolutely useful tool for examining the intersection of this uh, interregional and even interimperial Armenian diaspora and also what it meant to be a non-ethnic Russian, a non-Slavic, perhaps non-Eastern Orthodox elite serving the Tsarist bureaucracy, the Tsarist military. So you asked about Urgavia. Some of my uh, main uh, materials from there focused on the participation of not just the Lazadevs, but other ethnic Armenian generals and officers in various Russian campaigns from the early decades of the century with the Russo-Persian and Russo-Ottoman Wars to the much later decades, for example, the 77-78 uh, Russo-Ottoman War. I'm, I'm also intrigued um, thinking about a lot of work that's come out recently on, on Catherine the Great and Crimea might be one example. You mentioned Kelly O'Neill's work. Um, how the economic standing of Armenians in the empire changed. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the internal debates about um, Armenian business communities, the merchant communities in southern Russia. So if you have a trajectory from Catherine through Paul through Alexander, what is, what is it that, say, changes and what, what stays the same? I mean, how, how do you get at that through your sources? 
Yeah, it's a really also interesting uh, central thread. Uh, I guess to borrow Charles Steinweidel's term, thread of empire um, for this narrative is the evolution of uh, Russian perceptions of Armenian economic identity and economic standing in Russia, in the empire throughout the long 19th century. And this is an interesting story that begins in somewhat of a more familiar, perhaps, maybe not, uh, context of uh, Russian uh, officials, Russian bureaucrats, and certainly Russian merchants having a very um, uh, condescending, patronizing, and very much Orientalist uh, dismissive attitude toward Armenian traders. Uh, merchants as these uh, backward uh, uh, delivery men, delivery people who were um, primarily good at bringing uh, perhaps silk, perhaps uh, cotton, a few other commodities from quote-unquote the East into southern Russia, maybe all the way up uh, to Moscow. But they were not uh, known and they were certainly not uh, recognized for any sort of uh, uh, mercantilist uh, special abilities until they started to compete primarily with Georgians and other Caucasians much more um, much more frequently in the South Caucasus, specifically in Tiflis. The Russians started to pay attention to them and celebrated Armenian merchants as exemplars of quote-unquote Christian perseverance in hostile environments. The notion here being that Armenians as an ostensibly um, repressed or oppressed minority surrounded by Muslim states, by Muslim empires, the Persian and the Ottoman empires, uh, possess some kind of an uh, uh, irrefutable, intrinsic uh, uh, mercantile prowess that uh, separated them from their fellow Christian and Muslim neighbors and really gave them, uh, made them uh, deserve special treatment from the state. Uh, the Russians really exaggerated, romanticized, uh, simplified and idealized the notion that Armenians were special merchants who had the ability to cross international, inter-imperial uh, boundaries, border societies. And the Russians started to provide them generation after generation with exclusive privileges, economic rights, tax breaks, all sorts of unique exemptions. And I really don't use the word unique uh, very loosely, but in this particular instance, that really does apply in the 18 uh, teens, 1820s, yeah. 1830s. Yeah. And, um, and, I, go, yeah. Go ahead, please. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, after that, the, the dynamic changes uh, in large part because the state did provide so many exclusive privileges and opportunities to successive generations. Right. I, I, I have, I mean, really, this is a follow up question because there's so much interesting work now done on the taxation system. So can you, can you talk, I'm, I'm thinking of Yanni Kutsonos's work sure. and others. Um, what, what is it or how did the imperial taxation system um, 
defend or maybe that's the wrong word create a, a specific scenario for armenians and 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 jews and persians and georgians and others within the empire how did that work exactly a very interesting uh, i dare say a real interesting uh, topic because you know most of us probably we hear taxation and uh, our eyes start to glaze <laughs> over and i can really blame I, a lot of people for that I can't make it make it exciting as a research topic, but it's absolutely vital it <laughs> to, is. to understand in any history of, of empire or, or empires that are republics and empires and one at the same time. So how, how yeah. does that work? And you mentioned Yannick Kassonis, and I think he's put that question uh, to rest. It's really demonstrated how you can make that story very exciting and important. So, um, yeah, the way it worked was that... Um, uh, during the initial phase, which was a multi-tiered, uh, multi-decade phase of the Russian annexation of the South Caucasus, which began in 1801, but really culminated uh, in 1828 with the end of the Second Russo-Persian War, uh, the state felt that it needed. Of course, I'm. Uh, let me be clear that I'm generalizing for the purposes of this interview. But the state, uh, generally speaking, felt that it needed to identify specific segments of indigenous South Caucasian populations as their primary partners in both economic and political um, aspects. And Armenians were selected because of these romanticized. Uh, generalized and uh, often baseless uh, perceptions of uh, unique um, mercantile prowess, Armenians were selected to receive special tax breaks. They were not, for example, specifically, they were not required to pay the taxes usually associated in the Russian Empire with the merchant guild. They were exempt from the merchant guild taxes, which was a tremendous, tremendous break. This is something that Armenians had already received in Astrakhan, uh, a little bit in Crimea, but uh, for the indigenous Armenians of the South Caucasus, this was huge. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Could you give us an idea of which Russian imperial ministers trusted Armenian populations and, and which perhaps didn't? Because there's this constant oscillation that's then, it's almost instrumentalized, as you say, and I think demonstrate very convincingly um, between Armenophilia and Armenophobia. So uh, who who are they? This is really more of a who question than a what question, but yeah. who who trusted them and and then why? Oh, this is a, this is another really uh, curious um, um, display, a very tangible way of uh, measuring and seeing and really feeling uh, that tension between uh, uh, official uh, uh, Armenophilia and Armenophobia on the part of the engineers, the architects of empire, of Russian imperialism. Um, 
you know, we were talking a minute ago about the economic aspects. So let me point to the one of the most famous, one of the most uh, studied, well-known, well-recognized uh, ministers of uh, Russian finance uh, throughout the history of the Russian Empire, Igor Gankrin, who served as minister of finance yes. for, I think, right about three, three decades, uh, just about 30 years. And he is, uh, as his biographers point out, he's really uh, infamous for being a fiscal um, uh, fiscal uh, conservative, for lack of a better term, um, a, a fiscal conservative who was very uh, suspicious of non-Russian, non-Orthodox, mercantile, financial fiscal activity within the empire. This was not simply uh, based on an orientalist notion that ethnic Russians and Orthodox subjects were better at business, but he wanted to promote a more rapid pace of industrialization that he truly believed was really in the hands and the abilities of ethnic Russians or Western European emigrants. Immigrants. I, but I on, wanna, the other hand, on the yeah. other hand, we have uh, people down in the Caucasus, like the very first viceroy of the Caucasus, uh, the famous Mikhail Baranzov. Yes, that's what that's who I wanted to ask you about. Right. <laughs> who, who was he? It was he was quite notorious. I I thought in the way that you portrayed. Notorious when we talk about the con- specifically the conquest of the North Caucasus. So if you read about the Russian pacification efforts in the 40s and the 50s, right up to the capture of Shamil in 59 and the final end of the quote-unquote Caucasus War in 1864, uh, Baranzov's name, you write, is notorious because he uh, green-lighted, really under the pressure of the war ministry, a lot of... uh, um, repressive operations in the North Caucasus. However, in the context of the South Caucasus, specifically in the context of the social incorporation and socioeconomic development of the South Caucasus and the political engagement of the state with the indigenous residents of the uh, general region, Baransov's name is synonymous with cooperation, and that's another word I don't use lightly, but in this context, it applies very accurately, cooperation between the Russian state and specifically the Armenians. There's no better way to describe that than to use the three words, Baransov, trusted Armenians, period. Mm. Wow. I think that's a strong statement. Were there anyone, were there any other ministers who, who trusted the Armenian diaspora on that level, do you think? There were ministers who uh, wanted, not quite on that level, perhaps, There were, but there were plenty of uh, ministers, foreign affairs ministers, for example, uh, less so than inter- uh, interior ministers or internal affairs ministers, who wanted, I should say wanted more so than actually trusted, wanted to trust Armenians and wanted to believe that the influence of the Armenian church based in a little monastery in the South Caucasus about 10, 15 miles west of Yerevan, the monastery is called Etchmiadzin, they wanted to believe that the 
Katolikos, the patriarch of the Armenian Church based in Echmiadzi, had real political, not just cultural, not just uh, ecumenical and ecclesiastical, but political, cultural influence over the entire Armenian diaspora, particularly in the Ottoman Empire. And those ministers, especially the ministers of foreign affairs, they consistently for much, not throughout, but much of the 19th century, argued in very vague, very imprecise terms that Russia had the potential of uh, projecting its influence and power and meeting its foreign affairs goals vis-a-vis the Persian Empire through the conduit of the Armenian church. Hmm. I, I, I think that leads to some really interesting questions about the Alexanders, the, the two Alexander the second reform czar and Alexander the third. So what what happens in this religious roulette, as you put it at one point? I mean, do you think that um, with the great reforms, the plight of the empire's relation, let's say the relationship that, that the Russian czars and their ministers have with the Armenian diaspora improves. Uh, what, what exactly is it, let's say, coming out of the interior ministries um, that, that works best for the Armenian diaspora? I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm asking the question correctly, but... No, I understand. Yeah, I understand. that's a really good point. Um... Uh, you know, let me say that actually, and uh, you're very right, you're right on the spot to point to the 60s and early 70s, the great reforms era of Alexander II. You would think very rightly that the great reforms would have a political effect on the trajectory of the Russo-Armenian encounter or specifically Russian policies toward Armenians, but that's not really so. We don't see mm. a a direct effect of any of the um, judicial land reforms, military reforms, even some of the religious reforms that uh, Paul Worth and others have uh, described on relations between the state and the Armenian church or the Armenian um, merchant classes or the intellectuals. What we do see changing under uh, the late uh, era of Alexander II before his assassination in 81, and certainly under his successor, his son Alexander III, after March of 1881, is a dramatic transformation of what I call the previous Russo-Armenian symbiosis into a much more acrimonious much less accommodating, much less uh, symbiotic partnership into a much more acrimonious uh, confrontation between the state and a multi-tiered, diverse Armenian diaspora that is now viewed much more often as a source of nationalist uh, agitation that, of course, has all sorts of potential implications for the territorial integrity of the state. And that really begins with the gestation of Armenian nationalism, first the kind of casual and then professionalized Armenian nationalism in the 1870s and then 1880s. Yeah. And and could you give us maybe a point of departure? I think you have several of them from Sunni, um, this old style phase A, phase B, phase C 
um, national awareness. So, you know, when does when does the the aggravated nationalism or aggravated national awareness happen, and then how does Saint Petersburg respond to that? What's interesting here is that when it happens, how it happens, and who causes it. Uh, at least uh, from the Armenian side, is really driven not by the specific context of the Russian Empire, Russian imperialism, or Russo-Armenian ties, but it is rather driven by the specific context of the trans-imperial Armenian diaspora and the uh, internal dynamics of Ottoman nationalities policies. We see when, by we see, I mean, when the Russians, and by more specifically, I mean the Interior Ministry, detects the first manifestations of what it very casually and roughly lumps under the label of quote-unquote Armenian nationalism, that's in the mid-1870s, that is driven by the reactions of Tsarist subject Armenians, we call them Eastern Armenians, to the... Uh, oppression, the real and imagined oppression, the real and exaggerated oppression experienced by various layers of the Ottoman-Armenian minority across the Russo-Ottoman border. And the Russians begin to detect more and more often, more and more, um, uh, more and uh, more uh, intense reports of Armenian agitation, even Armenians illicitly crossing the border into the Ottoman Empire to first deliver money, supplies, then to deliver weapons, and then to actually fight alongside Ottoman Armenian uh, fighters, nationalists, rebels, uh, whatever you want to call them against the Ottoman authorities, against Kurds and others. Yeah, I, I really have two follow-up questions to that. So broaching maybe a new topic. So sure. I, I think that, you know, in your later chapters, um, five, six, seven, you, you really get into the crisis of this old St. <laughs> Petersburg symbiosis. And, you know, maybe we can date it or maybe you would date it to the mid to late 1890s. Um, I really like how you broaden geographically the issue into um, into the South Caucasus, but also into um, the story of Ottoman Armenians. So I, I wonder, you know, this is kind of like um, edging you forward to talk about numbers <laughs> because it, 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 that's such a controversial question. But when that nadir, as you describe it, is reached, that major crisis of, of symbiosis where the where the administration realizes it has lost an entire population, what sort of things are they paying attention to the most? So uh, you are referring specifically to the crisis of 1903. 1903, yes. when the, truly the nadir in modern Russo-Armenian ties occurred as a direct result of the Russian state's confiscation of all the, almost all the properties of Echmiadzin, the Armenian church within the Russian empire, practically all of its properties with some exceptions were confiscated by the state. 
as a result of the heavy-handed policies of our well-known, almost household, <laughs> to many of us, household names, Pyotr Stalibin, Vyacheslav Ampleva, and their, uh, their um, subordinates in the Caucasus are very important for understanding this uh, transition. And uh, this is the first time we see collective Armenian anger, Armenian political activism, and yes, even organized Armenian violence directed not at external, not specifically at Ottoman or Kurdish entities, but at the representatives of the Russian state. And this occurred it re- occurs as a direct result of the Russian perception of Armenian nationalism beginning to challenge Russian imperialism. And it re- occurs as a direct result of Armenians perceiving that the state is going to, um, going to absorb the Armenian culture into a bureaucratic framework in a way that it had accused the state of doing to the Georgians. Yeah, and do you see a lot of parallels there then between the Armenians and the Georgians in this scenario in 1903? You, you mentioned uh, the secularization um, policies. So what, what are some of the parallels there? Yeah, in reality, no, there are not a lot of parallels. But uh, in, um, in the polemics of Armenian nationalists, they immediately start to say that what the Russians did to the Georgians, which happened, by the way, decades earlier. Uh, One of the confiscations happened as early as 1811. But the Armenians begin to claiming that what the Russians did to the Georgians, what the Russians did to the Ukrainians with the prohibition on the use of the Ukrainian language, what the Russians have tried to do to the Catholic Church within the empire, all of these oppressive policies aimed at ethno-religious, non-Slavic, non-Russian ethno-religious communities within the empire are now occurring, uh, are now being aimed at the Armenians. What happened, though, after 1903 is that a new viceroy, the uh, a descendant of the first viceroy, Mikhail Varantsov, Ilarian Varantsov-Dashkov, was assigned by Nicholas II in 1905, during the chaos of 1905, to go down to the Caucasus, take over the issues. And he had the foresight to cancel out, to insist on reversing, not just the confiscation of Ejmiadzin's properties, which had occurred two years earlier, but also to try to smooth over relations between the state and the Armenians. And my argument at the end of the book is that with some very notable, with some very painful exceptions, yes, after 1905, we do trace a normalization of that more familiar symbiotic uh, partnership. And uh, to ask a kind of um, religious question or a question about religion, um, I'm struck often... Um, right. by how religious leaders within the context of empire um, try and tend to speak for an entire community. Um, this is a, almost a natural essential essentialism. And in, in this case, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're speaking for millions of people. So 
is that part of a convincing normalization? Are, are there others, let's say, because there are revolutionary Armenian organizations yeah, that have fully second, left that? As we know, how, how does that was, dynamic play uh, out by Tsar Nicholas II to, in matter, so Specifically nationalities policies, um, at least outside of West, the Western borderlands. And um, Nicholas both uh, believes his advisors who tell them that the Armenian church and the Catholicos of all Armenians has tangible influence over all these new Armenian nationalist parties, which by that point, there are at least three prominent Armenian nationalist parties and a few smaller ones. But he also wants to believe that the Armenian diaspora is this monolithic, collective, unified entity that can be uh, both controlled and, uh, you know, viewed and treated as a single entity, which obviously you know, is uh, inaccurate. Right. But the Armenian Catholicos is almost just as bad because he uh, has an equally exaggerated sense of his own influence, his own power, his own ability to um, direct the currents of Armenian political, cultural, and social um, direction. Yeah, and you you actually emphasize this, I think, very well in covering um, the diplomatic context by 1914. So you you say, quote, and I'm quoting you here: "In the end, Armenians remain too small a factor for the Romanov Empire to adjust its terminal course. The Armenian question received no Russian answer." Unquote. Sure, quote Can read, I ask for your uh, response is, uh, to why that might be as a, as a summation uh, point, and then we'll move uh, to your weather and to what degree and points. why or why not Armenians were a factor in uh, guiding or perhaps even influencing, as some scholars argue, Russo-Ottoman relations on the eve of World War One. My answer to that is a resounding no that the Russian state uh, paid attention but did not allow the Armenian quote-unquote question, a phrase, a term I do not uh, think is very um, accurate or useful. Uh, they did not allow the Armenian question to influence the direction of Russo-Ottoman policies. And the reason for that is that uh, both in terms of numbers, in terms of economic uh, uh, contribution or engagement in terms of socio-ethnic uh, um, integration, composition, and uh, roles, uh, maybe socio-political roles, the Armenians were simply not as prominent for Russian foreign policy, even military policy views by 1914, as they had been a century earlier during the Russo-Ottoman, Russo-Persian Wars of the early 19th century. <laughs> yes. That... And do you see Armenians as a pawn in the imperial game? That's a very pointed question. It's it's it's, but it's it, it's a question that is a leading question and a loaded question, um, because obviously they're much more than that. Um, but is is that how it's used in a kind of trans-imperial or maybe geopolitical framework? How, how would you respond to someone who's sort of like asking it to you like that? I think there were, uh, uh, from the Russian perspective, there were pawns. From their own perspectives, there were bishops. They viewed themselves with not baseless, not unreasonable uh, reasons uh, as wielding true 
um, self, uh, self-determination. In the economic and ecumenical spheres, they truly had tangible reasons to believe that they had power. And even the most uh, reactionary, the most rightist, the most orientalist, the most uh, russifying members of the various Romanov uh, ministries uh, begrudgingly acknowledged that to one degree or another, the Armenians did have power. But yet we, get, we can't get carried away by talking about uh, any uh, small, numerically small group as a key or pivotal determinant of a huge empire's foreign relations or even internal policy. So I want us to be careful about mm-hmm. really exaggerated statements like that. Yeah. And, and are, you, are you adamant about categorizing Western and Armenian, Western and Eastern Armenians? Um, is there a significant difference historically for you as a historian in, in understanding that, that arrangement? Because at the end, when you're concluding, it is a very strong statement. The pawn remains standing after the checkmate. Um, would it be the same for the Western Armenians as for the Eastern Armenians? Or how, how do you conceive of that? No, it wouldn't be the same. The experiences were very different. Uh, the most obvious similarity, however, is that they were both imperial minorities under the rule of very different, but very powerful, very large, very ambitious, occasional expansionist uh, imperial structures. Um, The checkmate that you're referring to in the conclusion specifically is a reference, is a nod to the Armenian genocide, which began just a Mm -hmm. few months after the um, the end of my narrative, it began in April 1915. The book ends in November, December 1914. I made that de- decision consciously because this is yet another topic, not even a subtopic, but a topic of its own, which deserves a full-fledged uh, study of its own. And I'm so happy to say that there are scholars Anglophone scholars, Armenian scholars, and Russophone scholars who are working specifically on that title right now. Yeah, that, but, that's uh, true. That's yeah. terrific. I mean, can you um, maybe recommend to our listeners here on New Books Network, and, and especially um, for Central Asia and Russian Eurasian studies, some of those scholars or perhaps some of those books? Um, I like to ask my interviewees if they can suggest two or three books. So who who is doing that research? Well, let me kind of uh, go backwards from um, uh, the last comment that I made specifically about the question of Russian attitude towards the Armenian genocide. I'm happy to say that Asya Darbinyan is working on a book monograph in English specifically on that topic. Asya Darbinyan is doing tremendous work There is a recent book, University of California Press, I believe it was published last year, 2019, by Huri Berberan from UC Irvine, who's written a fascinating account of the interplay and the real tangible interconnectedness among the Armenian activists or maybe nationalists, maybe fighters of the Russian, Ottoman, and Persian, so not just Eastern and Western Armenians, uh, empires who often coordinated, worked together, 
so in terms of the Caucasus, in terms of Armenians and empires, those would be a couple studies to pay attention to. Uh, in terms of Russian methods of imperialism, which is really where I believe my work uh, falls most squarely, I cannot say enough great things about Kelly O'Neill's study of Russian imperialism in Crimea. Yeah, I mean, I, in my I, opinion, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In my opinion, that's one of the most thoroughly researched monographs in recent years. I mean, that is really impressive work. Yeah. And the work that she's doing with Imperia GIS, I, I am just absolutely fascinated uh, by. But I want to feature um, you and your final points and your research. So, um, two final questions, if you don't mind. What are the big takeaways of your um, monograph for our listeners? And what are you working on now? Yeah, uh, the first uh, answer is that, look, uh, uh, I'm not the first person to say this, but I really want to hammer home the point that we need to move away from a couple of notions. First is the notion of, quote unquote, the crisis paradigm of Russian Caucasian history of the Russia and the Caucasus. We need to move beyond the uh, reductive uh, binaries of Russification versus nationalism or Christianity versus Islam or progress um, versus stagnation. The other uh, thing is that imperial, the may, probably the overarching takeaway from my book that I hope uh, readers will um, take is that empire building was so messy. It did not boil down to clear-cut, specific, nice and tidy um, theories or uh, expectations, but it resulted in messy realities, in simultaneous messy realities. And we can we have to resist the urge to really boil things down to a, an acrimonious or um, very conciliatory, very accommodating partnership when we're talking about something as complex as the engagement of a large population with an imperial bureaucracy and an imperial regime that evolved continuously from not just ruler to ruler, but from uh, year to year, from decade to decade. So the methods of Tsarist imperialism and I really want to encourage us to gain a more thorough understanding of the practical functionality of Russian imperialism. There were so many wonderful books, so many, I mean that sincerely, published before the opening of the Russian archives that uh, allowed us to get a good glimpse at um, the main ambitions, motivations, and even some of the methods of Russian imperialism. But it's really by, in my opinion, by going to the archives and doing thorough field work that we can elucidate the nuts and bolts, the nuts and bolts, the practical functionality of SARS empire building. Yeah. And I, I congratulate you again, Stephen, on the archival research. It's stunning for this monograph and I think a model for others to follow. So Thank um, you so much. Th I really appreciate th that. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, and really um, putting the years um, in at Garf and Argia <laughs> or Argavia. Um, oh, Argia, Argavia. Well, I cannot say enough great things about those archives, especially Argia. If anybody's worked there, you know what a 
spectacular place that is. Opened in 2008 after a tremendous uh, build from scratch. It's wonderful. Yeah. So thank you. Um, we have been speaking with Professor Stephen Rigg of Texas A&M College Station. He is an assistant professor of history there. Uh, this is Stephen Siegel, your host on the New Books Network and New Books in History. Uh, we have been um, speaking with Professor Rigg on new books in Russian and Eurasian studies and new books in Central Asian studies. Uh, I want to thank Professor Rigg for joining us today and speaking about his new monograph, which is out with Cornell University Press right now. It is called Russia's Entangled Embrace, the Tsarist Empire and the Armenians, 1801 to 19. 14, published with Cornell 2020. Thanks so much for being with us today.